The way Michael shot was a revelation. I never had to hit a mark or find a light. There was a lot of improvisation. The only people on set were Michael, the director of photography, Robbie Mueller, and the sound guy. The three of them in a huddle that would just move around the room. I would frequently do scenes and not know where the camera was. It was a little creative epiphany for me. Those are words from actor Steve Coogan on Michael Winterbottom's 2002 film, 24-Hour Party People. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. Today we're talking about 24-hour party people, and a quick synopsis of the film is, in 1976, Tony Wilson sets up factory records and brings Manchester music scene to the world. Tagline for the film is, the unbelievably true story of one man, one movement, the music, and the madness that was Manchester. The film stars Steve Coogan as Tony Wilson. Lenny James as Alan Erasmus, Shirley Henderson as Lindsay, and John Thompson as Charles. It's written by Frank Cottrell Boyce, cinematography by Robbie Mueller, directed by Michael Winterbottom, and edited by Trevor Waite. So today's guest is Perry, and we met, as people do in the New Age, online in a sort of fashion, but I don't know if you know this, we have a lot of mutual friends, and I think that just goes with being from Toronto, small enough city, even though it's huge. And your partner is actually really good friends of one of my oldest friends, Jane Walner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so we went to film school together. And it's funny because I was like, we probably have met in the past and probably just never I, knew I'm it. Probably sure. I feel like I saw, like, I feel like the last time I may have seen you in person was like, maybe like we were, me and my partner, uh, Emily Gagne, we're, we're on the going to go see a Banshees of Inishir, and I think you would just come out with Jane, I yes. think, the last time. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but Yeah. That was also like a long time ago, though. <laughs> it does feel like it was a long time ago, actually. I just yeah. remember that day specifically, because I think it was like, it was either that it was like cold going in, and then we got out, and it was like full-blown summer, and I was right. wearing like a jacket, and I was like, this is too much. Good movie, though. Good movie. Yeah, very good movie. I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners, tell them about what you do and what your relationship is to cinema and specifically our cinematographer in focus, which is Robbie Mueller. Yeah, of course. So yeah, my name is Perry Jackson. I, I guess I, I like to think of myself as sort of like the way like, like uh, Eddie Murphy and Bowfinger likes to think of himself or he's an active renter at Blockbuster. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I used to work at Blockbuster as well, but that's not, it's not, not, not an area the point, but um, I guess I've always really liked movies and lo- like cinema a lot, uh, you know, growing up a lot. And um in terms of our specific cinematographer, I would say like I've watched a lot of things like like Jarmish movies that he shot, and a lot of uh, mm-hmm. some and 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 specifically a lot of like free, like Freakins work with To Live and Die in L.A. and as well other other stuff. And I didn't even realize he did like a Joe Macklin Silver, who's another director I really liked that like directed like one of our like a made for TV movie that yeah. she had done a long time ago, and I was like it was very interesting. But yeah, I'd say like To Live and Die in L.A. was like one of those crazy great like experiences of a movie for me a, a lot and and all that's a lot of that's due to like, not, not only freaking's director directing but like also like the cinematography that mm-hmm. robin did a lot is really beautiful the oranges are really lush and stuff and like i kind of chose this specific film because it was like kind of on it like the verge of his like late career like he wasn't he was kind of not doing too much around this point it felt like it felt like he was kind of wrapping up or whatever the next film he did after this was coffee and cigarettes and then mm-hmm. kind of didn't do much after that honestly for like however long and then he obviously passed away in 2018 so it's like 
it's it's interesting to watch it as sort of like one of those last films of this that he, that he did, and it's like, and I also had a really strong because it's like the movie's over twenty years old now. And I watched it when mm-hmm. I was like in high school, and like it kind of taught me about not only about like the the Manchester scene, as people say, <laughs> but like uh, like it taught me about like Joy Division and, and New Order and the Happy Mondays and stuff. But it also taught me a lot about like Tony Wilson as a person, and like also like. Steve Coogan, like this was like my first introduction to like Steve Coogan and all those like British people, like Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon, and and even like little shots you see of Simon Pegg a little bit too. It's like it was mm-hmm. really interesting in that regard too. Yeah, it's basically like every British comedian from the two thousands is in this movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, before we get into the actual film and and Mueller, but in terms of like Winterbottom, the only stuff of his I have seen is the Coogan stuff. Like I don't know if you've seen more. I think like like maybe most like the trip movies a little bit, and I think yeah. like, I think it's funny because like after that it feels like he worked with Coogan a lot. Like he made mm-hmm. like I think one of the last movies that Winterbottom did I think was at TIFF was um, other than like the trip to Greece I think was like the last thing like maybe that was pre COVID, but like before that was like a movie called Greed. I think that was yeah there, I did see that yeah I didn't see that although I wasn't sure how was that it was decent you know I don't even know why I watched it I didn't see it at the festival I just watched right. it afterwards and uh, yeah it was. It's funny. I mean, I like Steve Coogan. I know I some Steve people Green. are, you know, hot and cold on him, but I find him funny. No, he's great. I mean, Hamlet Two is great, and like, and like, uh, <laughs> and like, oh, jeez. Even like his bit part in the other guys is great. So like, he's a very mm, he's like a good yeah. actor to use in a specific a specific role if you need to, for sure. Yeah, exactly. If you need kind of like a dickhead, then he's your guy. He's perfect for it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, so that that ties into a few things uh, about facts. So I was going to mention that this was his second to last film that he shot, Mueller and Coffee and Cigarettes being the last. And if you look through the films he shot, one, he's he went through a lot of films. And, right. you know, going in the 70s and 80s, he was doing like, I think 84, he shot like five different movies, which is absolutely insane to do. Yeah, that's yeah, like like Repo Man and like, you know, mm-hmm. Paris, Texas Paris, and stuff. Texas. Yeah. But as he said, towards the end of his career, he was starting to wind down, as one does, you know, he's getting older, and then he eventually passed. It's interesting to see where he started, and this being one of the later ones, but it doesn't feel like he strayed from who he was or his what his vibe was. But in terms of, like, the, the elements of the film, as you said, this is very much like the Manchester scene, the music scene that we all kind of know of that spawned millions of other bands later, you know, like your exactly. Oasis and so on. Uh, but uh, Peter Hook from New Order described the film as, and I quote, a film about the biggest cunt in Manchester played <laughs> by the second biggest. <laughs> so I was like, not, not wrong. <laughs> not at all. I was like, that's accurate. And I feel like I need to, <laughs> to mention that. No, of um, course. But Steve Coogan actually knew Tony Wilson and Winterbottom encouraged him to improvise a lot because he knows that's his strength and he had no issue doing that because he knew him kind of well enough to just kind of pick up on quirks that would fit well with the story it looks like he's having the most fun with it oh yeah Tom is fun like i mean even all the fourth wall breaks like i think that was such a mm-hmm. weird thing to see like when i was first watching this movie like when i watched it way back when and then even compared to now where you see it like ad nauseum at times now in the last like 20 years of filmmaking um there's so, so much like fourth wall breaks and like a lot of things but like it was cool to see it just in this sense too, and like how it, in a sense of like an actual like biography too, where it's like and they talk yeah. about like the whole like print the legend, not the the real story and all that stuff. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that because it's often described as kind of like a postmodern 
film and one of the first of the time, but the, the film itself was shot on video and then process later to give it like the film look so it kind of looks like it's like a handheld you know camera and it always looks it kind of when i was started watching i was like this kind of looks like if you're watching one of those like bbc you know tv documentaries from the 80s and 90s it had that very much you know kind of gray beige look to it Mm -hmm. which i found interesting and i think it works really well with this and yeah so like it really like kind of intercuts really well with like the actual f- footage of like of the bands itself like when you see the sex pistols footage and stuff like like combining that old film footage with like just the new like the footage you shot like in terms of like the film itself we're just really on top of the segues here right now because everything we're saying is right next but i had in my le- notes here so as you mentioned we're getting kind of a mix of fiction and non-fiction in this because we have our bands that are we all know, you know, Joy Division, Sex Pistols. We see them. We're seeing clips of them playing at the actual gigs that we're seeing. But then it switches and there's actors playing them. And we're switching back and forth. And it's it's interesting to watch that because I always wonder how different audiences view that. Because I know some people might find that jarring. I don't know if they. it's because there's also the comedy undertone in this and because it's set up right off the bat as being like a pseudo documentary, I wouldn't call it a mockumentary only because I don't love that term. Yes. I think this is a film that's not even really a documentary. It's a biopic, you know, that's using different mediums. So I guess I'm wondering how you feel about the mixing of fact and fiction and if you would call it a documentary or what. You would call it. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't really call it. I guess it's sort of a documentary, but it's also more narrative in the sense of like with the with how it works. It's not like it. It, it is sort of like documenting events that more or less may have happened because it's always about like printing the, mm-hmm. the legend. And so it's more like the stories that are that you hear are more you know that's better to showcase those stories as opposed to just like what actually happened because sometimes what actually happened is not as either far from the truth or not as interesting as the truth. So mm-hmm. you know, and, and I wouldn't call it. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It's not really a mockumentary in that sense, but I know that the, with the comedic undertones with of it too but what also with the heavy dramatic undertones as well too like sometimes they might not tonally mesh as well to, to some people but i feel like it works here because i feel like it's about like because i guess in a, in a way his figure was sort of a comedic way and you see that a lot in the news in like mm-hmm. it's like news reporting that he's, does, that he's doing before in the meantime of like while showcasing cool like bands on his talk show like you see him just kind of do like going about like town and, and manchester and like with the, the hang gliding intro or like seeing yeah. his animals and stuff so it's like you know, he had a bit of a kind of a mundane sort of existence and, that, and, mundane, and mundanity always leads itself well to comedy. So it kind of makes sense. But then you see this mm-hmm. other side of him that's sort of just like the underbelly of like about factory records and all that stuff and learning about like how the club scene is working and everything like that. So it's sort of like the it's the juxtaposition between both of his kind of inner worlds almost, too. Yeah, exactly. There's a quote I kind of want to read from a paper I was reading that you know, reflects what you're talking about and just what it's doing in terms of the visuals. And as you said, the the era that it's showing, because this is, you know, your late 70s, 80s era of music and what was going on there and the technology. So Robbie Mueller's unpolished DV photography approximates a documentary effect that complicates any hints of nostalgia or hindsight. Everything appears to be existing in the same moment, free from any note of sepia tinge reflection. So I like that because, you know, it, there is 
a narrative going through here. And we're following a story that may or may not happen. There are certain parts that we know happen. We know those bands played at those things. We know that those things happen there. They've been documented. What we as viewers don't need is for it to be shown as like a flashback because it's treating the audience smart enough to know that we're just going to realize that this is something that happened in the past and he's recounting. Some of it is happening in the present in the film. Some of it's happening in the past. So how do you feel about the way, I guess, the the film treats the audience? Because I think it has quite a bit of respect for an audience, especially because this, as you said, it is over now, 20 years old. Yeah. And audiences were different then, audiences different now. So how you felt about it then and how you would feel about it watching now? Yeah, I guess like how I felt about it then was sort of just like it was like watching a document of, or or like watching this kind of like I, I, in terms of the, like the audience I was like because I, I guess when I watched this I was like I guess like fifteen so it was like I was sort of all I really knew about this movie ahead of time was sort of like oh it's a movie about like the music scene back then and how interesting it was and I think I might have read about it in like Spin magazine at one point but at the time so it was like I, I was sort of interested in watching it because of basing off, off of like oh it's it's about music not about music history in a way and like even watching it it wasn't like it was doing a lot of more like showing and not telling like it was telling and very like only in, like the little bits of like the, in like the I guess the voiceover mostly like that kind of narration and mm-hmm. whatnot but like it wasn't just like hitting me over the head with like facts after facts after facts it was sort of like letting it breathe and letting everything show like let, seeing like seeing how the band like how Joy Division came up with their name and being like well you know it's <laughs> it's 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 like you know based on the like a, it's obviously about Nazis and, and whatnot too but like it's like but it's also like you know it incurs joy you know like and it's, yeah. so seeing that kind of conversation like you know that could have been just like a fact someone said like or something or just like a you know like mm-hmm. a narration step but the fact that it's like showcasing this kind of this these little like bits and pieces of the story like as opposed to just like listing off facts after facts and just showing some some archival footage it's like it it makes you breathe and live in that world a little bit better too and i think it's it's treating its audience in a way of like hey we respect you we respect that you you will know learn these facts over time as the movie progresses Mm -hmm. and like it's not we're not just gonna like hammer you the head just facts after facts or whatnot for sure which i appreciate and what you said about the the camera of the showing and the not telling i think that's really interesting because I think even for myself, when I think of Mueller, I think of slightly more serious pictures, you know, something that's, I don't necessarily associate him with comedy, is what I'm trying to say, I guess. And it's funny the way he utilizes the camera here, because you can tell that he definitely has a sense of humor. The way that people are shot, sometimes nothing is being said, but you're, it's inherently funny because of the way he's shooting, you know, Coogan. Or some of the other people, even like that Joy Division scene, the way he's kind of going back and forth between the reactions. Mm -hmm. It's great. And that's also in the editing, of course. But I like that there's a sense of humor behind the camera. And just when I started this, because it's so visually different from something like his work with Jarmusch or Vendors, it was a little off-putting at first. But then you see him in it. You know, there's that dirt and grime in that because it's manchester in that time it's a very industrial city it's kind of gross looking and you get your neon lights because we're in clubs a lot but then there's a couple scenes that reminded me of a couple of films that he's done so there was immediately i was brought back to like the repo man stuff and like the punk sensibility that he has and there's one scene it's a very 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 quick scene Tony Wilson is talking to a man. I can't remember who it was, but he's asking him. He's like, oh, I thought you were meant to be in London. And he's sitting at like a bar 
And it looks exactly like the bar that like John Lurie is sitting at in Paris, Texas. And I was like, oh, I don't know why that stuck out to me. But there's stuff where he's kind of like nodding back to his previous works. I don't know if you picked up on especially the punk stuff and and Repo Man. Yeah, I was going to say like a lot of like the way like the highways are shot, a lot of like the like the like the exterior shots of like just like the world of Manchester. It also kind of felt a little bit like with the sun and like the oranges felt a little bit like to live and die in a late of me a little bit, which is mm-hmm. really I, I didn't think about clocking that. But I was like, oh, I could see. And a lot of the way like the like the sheen, the, the scenes of just like driving or whatnot, they feel very like they're very close up to the car and like and that weird like specific angle felt very much like how he shoots like any like even like some of the chase scenes in like in like to live and die like that the, like closeness to it which is really interesting and like even like a way like the the way some of the mundanity is shown in that movie is very much like jar like watching a jarmush movie like watching like um for i think it was I'm trying to think what it was called now i mean not, not like ghost dog per se but like more like i was thinking like mystery train was like kind of similar to that oh, yeah. kind of vibe of like mystery train of like the vibe of like how this the city looks and whatnot so a lot of those exteriors yeah. kind of felt like like him, him and his Jarmusch work a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, this doesn't work for every film, but I love a film where the city itself is its own character. Of course. And sometimes that is, you know, prevalent in the story because obviously Manchester is such a huge part of this. 100%. Uh, but he always, even something like, because I'm doing The American Friend as well, and I've watched that, and parts of that city that they're in that looks hideous, but it's also sometimes is gorgeous. So he's able to get both out of it manchester's a little harder yeah that's <laughs> true it's not the prettiest city uh, no. but then he'll still he's able to still pick up certain things that are charming about it of course which is you know appreciated so if we go back to just the way it looks visually because it doesn't really stray from having that sort of I guess what we would call now a bit of a filter on there. That's true. Another quote I'm going to read here from The Quietus is, Mueller's ability to make the televisual cinematic is remarkable. The film capturing it in its digital grain, the urgency of participants finding meaning in music and at the pace at which they move through Manchester and their lives and careers. What I like about that quote is just what he's doing with the camera matches the music, matches the energy. And I don't know if you noticed... But for me, I felt that it started off very chaotic. Oh, yeah. Like, it was very shaky and chaotic. And it's still chaotic as you're watching it. But in the scenes where Tony Wilson's becoming more corporate and put together, it's more still, you know, the cameras. And then you do have those switches between, like, they're in the the clubs and all the drugs and whatnot. But it's less frantic, the camera. So I guess, how do you feel about the way he utilized franticism to match the music that's being played in the background, you know, you start off with punk and then yeah. it goes to more new wave. Exactly. Like, cause I think it's like when you start with that punk, when you start when the, in the punk world, it's like, it's all, it's all about that frantic sensibilities of like the raw energy of like those punk shows of like, a, like watching a joy division show and seeing the raw energy in, in the, in the audience or, or seeing like uh, other bands, like, like with a band that he was uh, eventually went on with a certain ratio. Like you see that sort of mm-hmm. like that, raw energy of that viciousness of like going in a punk show but then like a- again like as you're saying kind of like as he's becoming more corporate and as he's getting more into like moving away from the punk scene after ian curtis obviously tragically you know mm-hmm. uh, what happened to him and then like kind of moving into that more the rave scene with like the happy mondays and stuff and and you see that's like he's trying to like kind of and then as the hacienda opens up you see like he's going more corporate and getting more of like he knows what people want and he knows what he's he's thinking like oh 
it's all like it's, it's like the how dance is becoming that craze and then like the fred sensibilities almost kind of become more about the rave scene and it's like still like you were saying it's shot still but you're still seeing that frantic energy but it's just different because mm-hmm. of, again of like the corporate nature and like they're sort of like corporatizing dance music at this point at, at, you know and like yeah sh- showcasing like oh yeah we can have a like have a sound that like ref- like it's reflective of everybody and and everything and like also and then you come into the play with like how the drugs get into the mat into the matter and then it becomes even more like wavy and and like like lucid and whatnot too which is always like nuts to see and and as the drugs kind of come into play here too i feel like when you're watching it you never feel as though the camera is on the outside looking in it's always kind of within when you're watching the bands play you're kind of in the crowd as well yeah or when you're in the club scenes in that I, I love that. And it's just him getting in there and being like, we can't be looking at on the outside looking in because especially because they're addressing us so often as though we are, you know, along for the ride. You mentioned something like to live and die in L.A. and the way he uses the camera and that and just how it's kind of in your face and rapidly following these people. How do you feel about the way he shoots specific scenes in terms of like getting in there right up in your face? you know, not really giving you space to breathe type yeah, of deal. Yeah, I kind of think, I kind of think about it like to like, even like when, how we shot in like, in the Tillman Dunn, like in like the, in like the airport chase scene and that freneticness of it and, and noticing that like having to keep up with William Peterson running and whatnot feels very similar to having to keep up with like having people with these bands performing or having, or like seeing Happy Mondays perform and having to keep up with their energy because it's like, mm-hmm. it's, that's the thing, right? You have to keep up with that energy and kind of match it at the same time too. And like, I, I see a lot in that or, or, but, but then again, you see those like quieter moments. Like I think like a thing like in like mystery train where it's like, just like them hanging out on the train and whatnot, or, or them just, or like the two just like going about the, the little small town. Um, mm-hmm. It matches those small town elements of just like Steve as, as Tony, just like walking amongst the walking with Manchester and like kind of those quieter moments where it's like, you know, you see that freneticness of like a show happened the night before the club. And then it's like, he's interviewing an old man about trains you know yeah. and it's just like it, it it like matches it so well and like but he's able to like switch it on a dime almost from like something as frenetic to something just like really quiet i definitely agree with that i think that's what i love about the fact that he's so good at shooting both night and day mm-hmm. and obviously most of this takes place at night because we're dealing with music and clubbing but the daytime scenes are shot in a way that do showcase the people differently, the city differently, and then the nighttime. I think nighttime shooting for Mueller is probably my favorite because that's when his lights come out and we get the... There's not so much green in this movie or the orange, but there's a lot of red. As a fan of Mueller yourself, how do you feel about the the nighttime shooting in this the the colors that are he's kind of known for and how it works for this story right like i think i can see a lot of the neon obviously is like and in, in like the, especially the club scenes is really prevalent here and like what's cool about it is like purple seems to be like the the main color of this or like a lot of like the purples and blues a lot which is like i'm used to mm-hmm. him with more like the orange and the oranges of like it's living down the light or like more i guess orange feels like his prom his prominent color obviously but like uh, and, and things like mystery train and, and and other stuff but like or you'll get a movie like coffee cigarettes which is purely black and white and so it like kind of matches that yeah. sort of like that color and whatnot too but like yeah i i guess like 
he shoots 19 so so very well and like it's just it, it, you get that sense of just like everything and and what i what i just that's what i kind of dig about it it's just like it's it's just very well done and, and everything it's like it's very you feel like you're there essentially which i know is kind of like a very cliche way of saying like oh you feel like yeah. you're in the action but like it's true you feel like you're there like i mean like even in the in like the nighttime band scenes you feel like you're in the audience just like watching these performances and that watching this crazy energy and everything so it's it, it works really well but then you see like a really quiet night scene of like that like when tony's getting you know the uh, having sexual affairs with two ladies in the, at the back of a van it's like that that whole mm-hmm. thing just works really well and like the the night and everything like that and seeing his like his girlfriend be really mad about him and everything like that it's just like that the way that's all shot in that night sense is is gorgeous even like but like it's also drabby at the same time too because of like of course manchester uh-huh. has that drabbiness to it so it's <laughs> able to like really effectively shoot that drabbiness of Manchester in the night, but also match it later to like when the rave scenes are going and then it's like becoming more pulsating and everything too. I always wonder with a film that's so music heavy, one in this is kind of even outside of Mueller, but if you are watching this and you're not either familiar with this or this is not your type of music, how do you get about getting into this? Because there's a lot going on outside of just the music, but it's as as Tony says, you know, this is not a film about me. It's about the music and the people who made it, which I thought was interesting because sometimes you do get lost in being like, you want to see what stupid nonsense Tony's going to do next. Right. But it is about the music. And I love the mix of the bands playing. And there is quite a bit of Joy Division in this one. Mm-hmm. And you just do to rights issues. I know that they wanted to get the Smiths in there. Morrissey was like, absolutely not <laughs> because he had some issues there. But then that joke pays off at the very end of the movie about like, you should have yes. signed the Smiths. And it's like, yeah, you should have. <laughs> I, I thought that was hilarious. And um, actually, I do want to talk about that last scene with, you know, God in the sky. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it could only work in a film like this where it set it up to have that payoff. I don't think this would have worked any other place in the film. And when it happened, as silly as it is, I was like, you know what, this makes sense for this. It's hilarious what he's saying. It's quick. How do you feel about seeing God in the sky? I I, I like that. Well, because I think it goes back right down to the writing about how he's just like, I saw God and he was like, what, was like, what do you look like? He's like, look like me. It's like, oh, of course. It's like, yeah, well, if you saw God, yeah. he would look like you because you see God in your own image. It's like, oh, that's, I never thought of it that way. Like, I always think of God like in a way of like, when you see God in a film, it's always like, oh, it's supposed to be like either a man or, mm-hmm. or, or Alanis Morissette and Dogma or, you know, <laughs> like all, the, all these different kind of facsimiles of what like God can be to somebody. And like, it's interesting that they went that that route. I think Coogan played it really well. And I think just like it's more or less like that sense of like, hey, you, you did well with your life. Yeah, you made some mistakes, but like you did all right pretty much for the most part. Like, and that's because like as his whole the hacienda is winding down, his factory is being about to be sold and whatnot and, and and everything, it's like, oh, like he just wants to be known that it's like, I did okay in life, essentially. And that's yeah. kind of what he what he got. And you know, I think he went I can't remember when he passed away specifically. I don't know if it was like later on and I feel like he I can't remember exactly when Tony passed away, but like it, he lived quite a bit longer even after mm-hmm. like factory and, and the hacienda closed also too oh it was I just, I just looked up it was it was 2007 oh okay so not too much longer there yeah you there you go well you know live fast i guess yeah, that's true yes <laughs> i mean i don't know how old he was at that point but i can't imagine he was that old no i don't think so i think like he was like like i mean yeah i guess he would have been 50s? in yeah i guess probably like yeah at least 50s for sure like he was on his way to like almost to the 60s before he passed but yeah oh r.i.p yeah <laughs> There is one more scene I do want to talk about because it just popped in my head there because it seems like it's kind of out of nowhere, but it's 
kind of ties into what I was talking about, the camera being kind of a comedian. There's a scene with the pigeon. Yes. And like the faux gun. It it took me, it was kind of jarring for me at first, but then I was like, I rewound it because I was like, did I miss something where we're switching off? Because it seems so different from everything else. Um, how do you feel about that scene? It's a, it's a wild scene. And also like, I think it's like the mix of digital, like the, the digital, like the CG mm-hmm. pigeon, which is so like, not the greatest looking CG pigeon no. by any means <laughs> matter, but like the, just like having it like kind of these two people just getting up to no good, but then like intercutting it with like this weird, with like the, the anthemic like orchestral music and, and like the you know and, and making it seem like a war scene where it's like them against the pigeons when really they're the ones that are doing all this bad stuff to the pigeons it's it, it's interesting to see in that in that regard but like yeah it, it's just like it, again like it kind of mixes that like it's very goes with a huge comedic, comedic undertone and then it's sort of like tony's like yeah well these two are going to be really representative to dance music in a few years so just look you know like you, you, as you'll see in the in the in, in the coming hour in the coming minutes but like which is so which is so cool it, it kind of have you seen the movie birdie i have always wanted to but i've always wanted to but i've never seen it no unfortunately it reminded me a lot of that even though birdie is not it's not purposely funny right in any means <laughs> but it was like two chaotic men and with the birds so it just brought me right back to that <laughs> i i don't know i watched birdie for a film club and i think i was the only person who enjoyed it Everyone else hates it. I think it. like I, I feel like I have the capability of liking. It. I mean, it's got Cage and Mo. Is Cage and Modine right? Is it or yeah, yeah, yeah? I feel like I have the capability to like it. Cage playing the straight guy, the straight man. Oh, and Modine's the, the story. is the is the bird guy. Yeah, yes, of course. Wow. Yeah, very wild. It's an interesting watch. It's chaotic. It's <laughs> basically that entire scene, but a movie. Wow. The amount of chaos in that scene is that movie. Not to talk it up too much, but <laughs> or give anything away, but. Uh, there's a lot to say about this movie, but I think it's one that's, I mean, with every movie, and I'm always going to say this, there's only so much I can say about a movie without kind of beating it to a pulp. I yeah. always encourage people, hopefully you've watched it, because I, I think you can listen to this without having watched it and then hopefully it inspires you. There's no actual spoilers in this. No, it's all... unless you know about history. Exactly. Unless you know about history, yeah. it's like, okay, it's not really spoiling like anything because it's like all about, it's all no. historical and whatnot too. Exactly. Are there any other points before we get into the last couple questions that I have for you that you want to discuss about the film itself? Um, I I guess like v- visually, I think that I love that the change up between like the eras because like the early seventies is more grimier and then the eighties become a bit more glitzy mm-hmm. with, with the glamour and of the, of the rave scene and stuff. And then it becomes even more trippy as more drugs are introduced like cocaine and ecstasy and whatnot too. I, I think it was like the DV style of it all was so interesting to me because like, like we were in that early 2000s era, we were getting into like more digital kind of like cinematography and whatnot. And some people it, it yeah. like worked out well for, and some people it didn't work out great for. And I think this is one of the better examples, although I don't think it's perfect. Like it's not like, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I guess like when, when, when man was doing in like the early 2000s with, with like stuff like collateral, yeah. but like it is still interesting to see like how it works and how it actually really adds to that documentary kind of or that faux documentary style and how it kind of mixes Mm -hmm. in with like oh we're gonna mix in this with like actual footage and it's still and it feels very like it meshes so well that it's so it's so interesting because i feel like that wouldn't normally happen like you you have if you met like meshing film with film makes sense meshing digital with film it sounds like kind of hard but like it works really well here yeah i think it's as much as i've mentioned this in prior episodes the the early 2000s is one of my least favorite eras 100%. of everything. Of course. 
I just I think that. it's horrendous, but occasionally you get like, occasionally you get something like this. And it, it did remind me of, because I also just did an episode on the Gleaners and I, the Anya Sparta one, mm. and she shoots that all on you know, like a mini DV. So I think that would be a great companion to this, but I think it's also very of the time, 100%. you know, if someone's going to shoot on a camera like that now it's a stylistic choice not that it wasn't then but it was very much now people have smaller cameras at home it's kind of relating to the everyday person whereas now you kind of would maybe have to justify why you're shooting on a mini dv in 2023 yeah unless you unless it's like unless it's like a stylistic like i'm making it to be like a like to be nostalgic mm-hmm. for 20 years ago it's like you're really nostalgic for 20 years ago okay then i guess cool but like yeah yeah or like i mean i like i really like 28 days later so i want to make it look like that it's like mm, okay <laughs> yeah like well i don't know if we i think we're past yeah. that look mm-hmm. it's great to see how far we have come and how far we had gotten at that point but yeah man Anything 2002, like... It's rough. I don't even know. <laughs> 2012. <laughs> that's maybe pushing it. Maybe like 2007. No, yeah, that's accurate. That's accurate. Just some rough times. 2000 to like 2005, it's like, we just didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. As I'm, like a collective human society. I remember I watched Mission Impossible 3 and I was like, this movie looks like, this does not look good. It's like, what is this weird, like, J.J. Abrams, like, style here? This yeah. It's like, yeah. I recently watched the first time, oddly enough, Infernal Affairs, oh. which is great, but it's exceptionally 2002. It's very 2002. It's like, it screams 2002. It's like a time capsule of that time. If, yeah. if someone was like, even this, maybe if someone was like, what was that like? Like, watch this. Well, I mean, Infernal Affairs is that, that that chase scene in this in the in this in the theater that has all these men in black two posters. So it definitely feels yeah. very 2000s. <laughs> Yeah, that too. That does <laughs> that does help. That was funny when I saw that. I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I forgot about. Uh, I love that in movies when you yeah. see a poster. It's always so cool, or like a marquee and everything. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think that's I think that's twenty four hour party people yeah. to the best of our ability. I want to switch it now to the end credits portion of the show, which I have two questions for you. I ask everyone. First question being, if someone were to come up to you and is interested in watching Robbie Mueller's shot film, has never really seen any of his films, and it's trickier with this because we're dealing with different directors as well, but if they're going specifically for Mueller and you're like, okay, this is the movie that I think you should start with. Are you recommending this one? If so, why? And if not, which of his films would you recommend they start off with? I would not recommend this as a starter because I feel like it's already so late in his career that it's like, uh, it's hard to tell, like hard to compare this to like other, obviously other works, like obviously his work with Wim Wenders and obviously his work with, with Alex Cox, with Repo Man and, and with Friedkin with To Live and Die in LA and Jarmusch with a, a lot of stuff. So it's like, I, I would say not so much just because I feel like there's different directors in their movie. And obviously Michael Winterbottom is not like the most well-known, I mean, he's a well-known director in terms of the British world, I would say, but like, mm-hmm. I, it's hard to say, I wouldn't say this is probably the best starter film. Film, but I would say like something like maybe like I mean obviously we'll sim for to live and die in a life I think one of the best movies ever created but like uh, mm-hmm. um, but uh, <laughs> like I also think like looking at something like Ghost Dog you see that kind of the quietness also in in a, in a movie like that and like the small like the, the really like stilted kind of nature of it in in in, in, uh, in Ghost Dog or like kind of the more hangout elements of like Mystery Train or, or more like the vibrancy of like the the city of L A and to live and die in a life so I would say this is not the greatest starter film but there I think it's 
a good movie if you watch like if you watch like maybe like four or five of his films before and you watch something more mm-hmm. of like later era like just before he worked with Jarmusch again this would be kind of a, a more interesting like kind of odd experiment kind of film to, to see of his for sure like obviously something like even like think a movie like a comedy like Mad Dog and Glory which is like not a great movie but like that I would kind of put it in sort of like not in that respect because I think 24 Hour Pro is like a, is a much better like is much more of a watchable movie than that movie but like it's mm-hmm. one of those interesting kind of experiments you see that it's like off kilter not what you would expect to see of them but like it's you kind of see this and be like oh this is really interesting absolutely i agree with that i also think you know as i was reading at the question i was like this is not really fair to winter bottom <laughs> because he's worked with so many great directors like as much as Winterbottom is a name, but he's nowhere near, unfortunately. unfortunately you know, yeah. I'm sure he would agree, like a Vendors or a freaking yeah. just just straight up Red Jarmusch. But I also agree, like, I wouldn't say this is a starter. It does have a lot of him in it. Mm-hmm. But I think if you've watched a few of his things and you want to stray off into something that's not the norm, I guess, for Mueller... 100% we recommend. I would probably also start off because there's so many great ones. So, so I'm biased. I'm going to say Paris, Texas would be. Of course, yeah. But then also like Rebo Man's also one of my all time favorite films. Like I watch it all the time. So that would be a good one. He just has so many good ones that I don't know that any of them would be the bad place to start. But there's ones I would choose, as you said, over others to be like, start here. And then there's like, I have a whole list of other things <laughs> you can watch. That's a great career yeah. to have where it's like hard to pick one that's very him. And so vast and everything. He's worked with everybody. Like maybe work with like Bogdanovich and like, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. Rob Ruiz. So it's like, yeah, he's worked with so many cool people. Yeah, I forgot he had shot St. Jack, which I watched for the first time a couple of years ago. That movie is interesting. Yeah. I've never, I mean, Bogdanovich yeah. is always weird with me because he's like, he's got some, some hits and he's got some misses and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, so. It's not his best. It's not the one that I don't know that I would recommend it unless, I think if you're a, a Ben Gazzara fan, then watch mm-hmm. it because it's, it's him. But the story itself is kind of, meh. Nah. It's an interesting watch, but I wouldn't put it high up on anyone's list Fair. of people involved. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So second question, the double bill question, and I'll preface this by saying not a single person has given me just one movie. So yeah, I mean, I, everyone I, comes I, with a list. <laughs> I mean, I have two specifically. I do have two specifically. So I I think my first one would be Anton Corbin's, um Control, which is more about Joy Division mm-hmm. and more about Ian Curtis. So if you like, if you like that first hour of, of 24 Hour Party, people want to know more about Joy Division, more about Ian Curtis and like his kind of mm-hmm. upbringing a little bit more. I think that's that lends itself a bit better to that. And like, it's an incredible, like incredible film. I feel like it's. And the black and white nature of it is really cool and everything is really, it's, it's a very good movie. It's like one of my favorite like music biopics, I would say ever, I would say maybe probably just because it's like, yeah. and it's a movie that doesn't really get talked about either, which is so interesting to me. But another that one's great. Yeah. Another one I would think about actually with coming to this, uh, some of that vibrant nature of like the second half of the movie, I kind of go towards like Todd's long, it's, it's, yeah, it's our Velvet Goldmine because I think of that oh, the okay, bright yeah, nature yeah. of it all is so cool. And like, you see, and again, that kind of relates back to like, uh, maybe not necessarily the Manchester scene, but like a different kind of scene of like English rock and stuff. And you see like more about more about Bowie and Iggy and stuff, or Bowie and Iggy archetypes at the very least. But like, yeah, Ewan McGregor and and uh, Jonathan Rhys Meyer and and great Christian Bale performance too. So it's like mm-hmm. I think that's a really cool, interesting, and and it's it's more queer, which is like there's not a ton of queerness in, in Twelve Hour Party People, but if you want that more element, no. you get that in, in Velvet Goldmine. And I think those are both really well in in terms of like seeing more of that musical of the British musical scene in, in both of them. I would say. Yeah, those are those are both great picks and 
great movies. I think they would lend each other, depending on the vibe, if you kind of want the contrast of, you know, 24 hour party people is a fun enough movie, even though there's some dark parts, but overall it's fun. Control is not so much fun. Not fun at all. Uh, it's gorgeous, but it's a downer. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you want the, the up and down. And then Velvet Goldmine is just kind of a there's some dark parts as well of course obviously because you're dealing with that scene but it's very glitzy and glamorous and it's gorgeous to look at so that's a good time yeah good for sure double bill thank you Uh, (laughs) the couple that i no i hadn't thought of uh control i don't know why velvet goldmine did come up in my mind but control is a great one I also, yeah, I don't know why people don't talk about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so weird. It's so weird. It just kind of disappeared. And like, I guess, and Sam Riley doesn't really do much, or he does some stuff, mm-hmm. but it's just like in British stuff. So it's like. That's unfortunate. The two that I brought, one is another Mueller one, and I've talked about it several times already. It's Repo Man. Yeah. Just because I think I just want more people to watch Repo Man. So that's what I would pair it with. And it's very punk. Mm-hmm. And 100%. if you just want kind of like that vibe where you sometimes, I don't even know if that's the thing that most people want. Maybe it's certain people who just are like, I kind of want to watch like a grungy punk movie. Those would be two good ones. And then I randomly thought of another one that I wouldn't even necessarily recommend this movie because it kind of traumatized me. But Class of 1984. Oh, that's a movie I've, I've always I've always wanted to see that movie. I've, never, I've always wanted to. It's oh. dark. It's dark, yeah. I've only seen it once. And I don't know, HMV back in the day, you know, yeah. RIP to HMV, that's gone. <laughs> Towards the end of their tenure, they would advertise, they'd have a lot of DVDs on for very cheap. So I bought a bunch. I just randomly bought Class of 1984. Watched it or put it on because, you know, you, Michael J. Fox is in this. That's true. Yes. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Thinking it was going to be like a Repo Man because I just watched it and it does have similar vibes, mm-hmm. but it's messed up. I wasn't, <laughs> I was not expecting. And I, every time I think about it, I get like traumatized over and over again. So I don't know that I'd recommend that, but I also like traumatizing people in a way that's safe. Of course. that's It's, <laughs> it's sa- not going to ruin your life. It's a safe space for traumatization. Yeah, of course. Exactly. You know, I'd be like, you won't be totally triggered after this, but it will stick with you. Is right. what, I guess what I'm saying. It's not the best movie, but I think it takes like the dirtiest and ugliest parts of 24 hour people and highlights sure. them. So that's cool. If you want something darker, then that would be my second <laughs> recommendation for a double bill. I would rather go for the first double bill. <laughs> <laughs> Repo Man's always a good time, so yeah. Repo Man, which... Were you at the screening? I wasn't at the screening. No, I was not at the screening, sadly, yeah. Yeah, that was great. That was the first time I got to see that. Oh, wow, nice. So cool. Yeah, I've watched it several times at home, but in like the review, it's just... It was great. It's very loud, but I guess that's how you're supposed to watch this movie. That's true, yeah. Good time. (laughs) Well, I think... I think that's it. I I want to thank you so much for talking to me about 24-hour party people and bringing it to me because it's been on my list for so long. So when you said that, I was very excited. I know, as you said, he has so many great films. Mm -hmm. And to go for something that's not as widely viewed, but it's still like a celebrated film, or I appreciate it a lot. I think people who have seen it will be super excited because I don't think it's something that 
people talk about often enough. So thank you so much for coming on. I hope that in the future, if you had an okay time, you want to talk about another director. Of another course, film. yeah. I think I appreciate you having me on, and I appreciate like because I did. I, I think when you brought up to me, I was like, I, I was thinking of some of the like the obvious choices, like well, to live in Dunaway would be perfect. But it's like I've talked about living in Dunaway. I could, you know, mm-hmm. you could, I could just have like a, I could have like, hey, do you want, anyone want to hang out and talk about to live in Dunaway for like three, four, five hours? <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I'm down. But like, I, 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 and I didn't really knew that he did 24 hour party, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting choice. It's a movie that like made a profound effect impact on me as like a teenager for like learning about different bands and like learning about different actors and stuff like that and it was so and, and like the visual nature of it i i'd always remember but I, and i hadn't seen it in probably a good like maybe 15 20 years or so so it was like it was cool yeah. to rewatch it in this light too so yeah i appreciate it at all and i would love to come back of course Seeing Faces and Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney with intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesandmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesandmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on To Live and Die in LA. Bye.